This message by Mike Pluniak was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Mike serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. This morning we were supposed to be kicking off our Sermon on the Mount series, but obviously because of the accident, plans have changed. But the Lord is sovereign and I am hopeful And I'm confident that his word never returns void. And that in his wisdom, he wants to minister to us this morning from 1 Corinthians 1. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's will that prevails. That is our confidence. And this morning, we're going to look at the first nine verses of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word for us today. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4. I give thanks... To my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him. In all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait For the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. May God write his holy word upon our hearts today. If you were to sit down and read the whole letter of 1 Corinthians from beginning to end, the oddest section of the book would probably be the nine verses that we just read. If you read the whole book and you came back and started over to these nine verses, they would probably appear out of place to you, unfitting, unusual, maybe even perplexing. Because if, if these nine verses were our only history of Corinth, it would appear to be the world's greatest church. But when we read on, what we discover is anything but that. It is a church filled with 
problems and controversies and divisions and sin and immorality. And to read this letter, if you would read it all the way through, you would discover that this is a church in chaos. When I, when I think about chaos, what my mind always goes to is the 1998 Tennessee versus Florida football game. It was a classic battle of good versus evil, and thankfully good won on that day. It was a sold-out game. Florida was number two. Tennessee was number six. The game was tied 17-17 as it went into overtime. In overtime, Florida held Tennessee to a field goal, and Florida's driving down the field, and Tennessee stops them on third down, and so they have to kick a field goal to tie it back up, and they go to kick the field goal, and it was wide right. And pandemonium reigned. I mean, it just, chaos broke out in the stadium. I was sitting in the student section at the time, and there was no conscious choice to storm the field. It was just a wave, and you either went with it or you died. Just thousands, (laughs) thousands of people storming onto the field. Within 35 seconds, both field goal posts came down. One of them was just carried out of the stadium and thrown in the Tennessee River, where I guess it still resides today on the bottom of the river. I mean, I was on the field and it was chaos. I remember this moment where just grown men are jumping and screaming and crying. And this guy ran up to me and he grabbed me by the shoulders and he was like, yeah, and he gave me a big hug. And Hey, I'd never met this man in my life. He was hugging me. I mean, people were going ballistic. People were digging in the end zone and taking pieces of the field and just running off with them. It was, it was chaos. It was a free-for-all. John Ward nailed it. Pandemonium reigns, you know? When I, when I, when I think of this church, if you would read the rest of this letter to the church in Corinth, you would think, Pandemonium reigns in this church. It is a free-for-all. Anything you could imagine, they are doing. And so to understand how amazing this section of Scripture is, the first nine verses of this letter from Paul, which can seem like such a simple introduction to, to experience the full impact of Paul's encouragement here, we need to flash forward to some of the problems Paul is going to address in this letter. Because as we flash forward, we're going to see how did he think like this? Why would he encourage them? What is going on in Paul's mind that he would see such grace in a church with such problems? And so we're going to get to the main point in a second But we need a little bit of background to help us capture the impact this scripture should have on us. So this is what Paul is going to address in this letter if we were to read the rest of it. You would find a church marked by immorality. Even in the world's eyes, the immorality they are tolerant of is appalling to Paul. And not only are they not ashamed of it, but they boast 
in this immorality. You'll find a church filled with divisions. There, there were cliques with different factions claiming to follow different men and claiming superiority over one another. These cliques were based on worldly standards, on dress and, and, and style and oratory skills. And they're fighting with one another and arguing with one another. It's a church filled with drunkenness. Even during communion at church, people are getting drunk. It's a church characterized by misusing the gifts of God. They had a chaotic meeting with people yelling out over one another. Everyone wanting to hear their no voice. No one preferring anyone else. No one allowing someone else to share before them. They're all trying to outdo one another and being heard and seen to see how spiritual they are. It's a church filled with lawsuits inside the church. They're a lawsuit-happy bunch of people. If there's a conflict or a problem, they'll as quickly take the other member of church to court rather than to resolve the problem. They're unwilling to submit to authority. All these were leading to doctrinal error in the church. They were drifting from the centrality of the cross and being seduced by human wisdom, which they valued. It's to the point where some are even denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the church. And and finally, you just see Paul in, in chapter 11, verse 17. He says, when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Basically, your meetings do more harm than good. In Corinth, pandemonium reigned. There were serious issues. And with all that in mind, all that's coming in front of him, all these issues Paul is about to address with the church, look with me again at verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. I thank God for you. I don't think that is how I would start my letter to the Corinthians. If I was Paul and I was sitting down today at my computer and typing out an email to this church, Dear Corinthians, what is wrong with you? Have you lost your minds? I mean, I think that's how I would start my email. I don't think my email begins with, I give thanks to my God always for you. We were watching an old movie recently as a family, and there was this moment where this person was getting hysterical, just, just kind of getting crazy and, and hysterical, and there was a doctor there, and the doctor walks up, grabs the person, and just slaps them across the face, and he says, get control of yourself. And we were all shocked. I was like, whoa, I think that's how they used to get it done back in the day, you know, just a slap across the face. We don't do that anymore. That, that's, that's probably how I would have started my letter to the Corinthians. Just get control of yourself. What is wrong with you? That's not how Paul begins. And it's instructive for us this morning because it's not how we are to begin to relate to others as well. From a human perspective, there doesn't seem much to be thankful for here for this church. But Paul was not viewing them from a human perspective. Paul 
in humility, saw the Corinthians from a divine perspective, and he allowed this perspective to determine his attitude toward them, which I think is the main point we can, we can glean from this text this morning. The main point for us today, I think, is a God-centered view of others can transform our thankfulness for them. I think this can apply in the church. It can apply our view of the church. It can apply in our families, our friendships, our relationships. A God-centered view of others can transform our thankfulness for them. This can have a transformative effect on our hearts. This text, it can transform our gratitude. It can transform how we treat others, how we speak to others, getting God's perspective can change you, can change the way you think, can change you in, in many ways. There's so many applications when we get what Paul is doing here in this greeting to the church in Corinth. There's so many ways that we can apply it to our lives. And there's just two I want to highlight that Paul does that I think we can learn from and apply to our lives today. So a God-centered view can transform our thankfulness. Point number one, I think Paul is more aware of grace than failures. He's more aware of grace than he is of their failures. And I chose the word failures there intentionally. It's sin. Could say more aware of grace than sin. But it's not only sin going on in the church. It's also the way they're responding to sin and celebrating it. Instead of confronting it. I mean, look in our text at how Paul addresses them from the very beginning. In verse 2, he refers to them as those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. They are sanctified. It's the same root word for the word saint he uses in that same verse. It's where we get the word holy. The concept he's saying is, is church in Corinth. You have been set apart by God as being holy. Now, they, they don't appear holy as we read the letter, but Christ has set them apart for his purposes as a holy church. They've been set apart to be holy because God is holy. He refers to them as called. He, he does this over and over. Sinclair Ferguson notes that called is one of Scripture's most frequent one-word descriptions of a Christian. If you are a Christian, you have been called. He uses that in, in the same verse. Those called to be saints. In verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called. And later on in verse 24 and 26 of chapter 1, he again, consider your calling, brothers. Consider where you were and what God called you out of. Verses 27 and 28, three times he uses this, this phrase, God chose. But God chose, God chose. And over and over and over, his emphasis here is on God's activity in their lives. Not the Corinthians' activity, but God's activity and all of his language in this greeting is reminding them 
It's God's call. It's God's activity. It's God's work. God did this. God chose you. God called you. God made you holy. It is a God-centered view of the church. And he continually refers to this. He, he talks about God. In verse 2, refers to them as the church of God. In verse 4, it is because of the grace of God. In verse 9, God is the one who is faithful. And something amazing, you probably, you may have noticed this when I read these nine verses, but God's work is through Jesus Christ. Jesus is mentioned in every single one of these verses. Just look down at your text. It is very repetitive, I think intentionally, by Paul. Verse 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Verse 2, they're sanctified in Christ Jesus, together with all who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, grace and peace from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, the grace of God given you in Christ Jesus. Verse 5, you were enriched in Him, in Jesus. Verse 6, Christ was confirmed among you. Verse 7, we wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, Paul, we get it. It's all about Jesus. It's His church, His work. We're enriched in Him. We're called by Him, sanctified in Him. He is the Lord. He is our Lord. His day is going to be revealed. It's all about Jesus. Every spiritual blessing, every mercy from God, every gift we get, it all comes through Christ. And Paul is unapologetically Christ-centered. He is going to say his name over and over. Even, this is what's kind of shocking, in verses 5 and 7, when he tells them that, that in Jesus they were enriched in all speech and all knowledge. And then in verse 7, when he says that they're not lacking in any spiritual gift. Those were the very areas that they struggled as a church. They boasted in their knowledge. They boasted in their speech. They boasted in their gifts. And yet Paul's inclination is not to undermine that and not to speak of that. His inclination is to remind them where those gifts came from. They came from Jesus Christ. And so, even though they abuse those gifts, Paul still recognizes, no, no, no. The gifts are not the problem. Jesus is not the problem. It's how you're using them. But those are gifts from Jesus Christ our Lord. And the effect, I think, is to remind the Corinthians of how they got there in the first place. I think that's the effect is he writes this greeting and he's reminding them, these came to you through Jesus Christ our Lord. The effect should be on them. Yes, these are not our gifts because I think that was their tendency. This was their knowledge and their speech and their gifts and their calling. They had forgotten 
No, 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 no. These are all from God. It's God's calling. It's God's gifts. It's God. He's the one who gives you the speech. It's God's knowledge. It all belongs to him. It's not theirs. And so Paul just reminds them. He rejoices in what God has done for them. It's so good just to pause and remember. How did I get here? How did I get here right now? I I was thinking about that this morning. How did I get here? And, and, And all you can say, if you think about it, you pause and you think about it. You, you can come with many answers, but where you're always going to land is God did this. God's the one who did this. For every person here right now, this is no accident. God did this. You are here because God did this. I love Charles Spurgeon, a 19th century pastor in London. He writes about asking himself one day, he asks himself the question, how did I become a Christian? You ever ask yourself that? If you're a Christian here this morning, how did I become a Christian? And Charles Spurgeon said, he thought, well, I sought the Lord. And then he thought, well, how did I come to seek the Lord? And he said, well, I prayed. And he thought, how did you come to pray, Charles? And he thought, well, the scripture told me to pray. And then he thought, well, how did I come to read the Scripture? And he just kept tracing it back until this is what he says. Charles Spurgeon said this, Then in a moment I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me and from that doctrine I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. What a confession. Let's make that our confession today. I ascribe my change wholly to God. See, Paul knew. Paul knew the Corinthians had been called. He knew this church was a creation of God. And Paul was more aware of the activity and the grace of God on this church than he was their present failings. We, we can be consumed. I, as I read this, I think I would be consumed from a human perspective of all the present failings of this church. And it's not that Paul doesn't know about those. I mean, he's going to address them later in this letter. He isn't naive. He doesn't brush them under the rug and act like they don't exist. But Paul has a divine perspective. God is at work. God called them. God's grace is at work. God is changing them. God is at work in their lives. God's not going to let them go. This is all God's work. He had a divine perspective. It made me think of these glasses we have as a family. This is embarrassing, so I'm going to do this. There are several members of my family who are world famous for getting car sick. I mean, world famous. We have spots all over East Tennessee we've had to pull over because they're nauseous and sick. And so several years ago, a very kind family in the church 
shout out to the Shugerts, told us about these glasses called nausea glasses. These ridiculous looking things have transformed our family. I was skeptical. I got these in the mail and I thought, this is ridiculous. This is the most ridiculous thing. And my wife, she put them on for a car trip, which, by the way, every time I looked over, you want to have a fun car trip? You just look to your right and see, see your wife just kind of like cars are driving by, she's hiding, you know. But my understanding is how these work. I can't believe I'm wearing these right now. This is like embarrassing. How these work is there is water in all these lenses here. So there's nothing here. They're just filled with water. And supposedly they create a stable horizon. So as you're driving along, the trees are going by and cars and everything's moving and lights coming through the trees and it makes people nauseous. And these glasses provide a stabilizing horizon. And even to the point where some of my kids who are very sick can read in the car now with these on. So maybe we should sell these in the bookstore as a little, you know, like study theology on car trips. The point is, is that before they see anything else, what these do is the first thing they see is the stable horizon. And I think what we learn in our text, it's like as, as Paul views others and he views the church, he's always got these glasses on. And what he's always seeing is God at work. Before he sees failures and problems and sin, he's just so God-centered. He's always wearing these glasses and it provides this stable horizon for everything he sees. And I believe it's how God would have us view the church this morning. As we look around the room, as we look at our neighbor on our left and our right, he wants us to put on these glasses and see God at work in their lives. Paul is not man-centered in his view of the church. He is God-centered. And that makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. So let me ask you, is this your perspective? Is this your perspective? Is this how you view others? Is this how you view your spouse, your, your kids, your friends, your family? Are you more aware in any individual's life around you of the grace of God on their life or their deficiencies? How about in the church? God's activity or deficiencies? What do you see first? Not that we don't have deficiencies. We do. But what do you see first? How about those in your community group? Are you aware of God's work in their lives? I think that's what this text teaches us. Many things we can learn. But I think the first thing is just, wow. He saw God's grace more than their sins and failures. Let me just encourage you. In your community groups this week, look around the room and identify evidences of grace in every person's life. Just go around the room and just look at them and think, God is at work. God is at work. God is at work. Think about specific ways you see God at work in people's lives. And then take it a step further. Communicate that to them. 
Tell them, I see God at work in your life. I see the grace of God. Do you know you have changed? You have grown. You are being sanctified. You are really growing. God is at work in your life. Our assumption is they're already aware of that. I promise you they are probably not. They are probably aware of all their deficiencies and failures and the ways they have failed. And when someone sits there and points out God's at work in your life, it has a transformative effect not only on you, but on them as well. John Piper says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. That is so true. Do your friends and community group a favor this week. Point out the fourth and the fifth and the sixth and the seventh way God is at work in their lives. They're probably not aware of it. But it starts with us putting on this divine perspective and pausing and saying God's at work in this person's life. This is Gordon Fee in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. He says, in every redeemed person, there is evidence of the grace of God. Yes. And that brings forth Paul's gratitude, both to God and for them. To delight in God for his working in the lives of others, even in the lives of those with whom one feels compelled to disagree is sure evidence of one's own awareness of being the recipient of God's mercy. If you're aware, I'm a recipient of mercy, you're going to have grace for others. And practicing this, noticing evidences of grace in those lives around you, it's going to help you remember, I'm a recipient of grace. What do I have that hasn't come from the grace of God? God did this. And it'll lead... It'll lead to worship and praise in your community group. So he's more aware of grace than failures. And then finally, number two, two points this morning. Point number two, he's confident in God's finishing work. We see that in our text. So so as he greets them in light of all these failures and issues where pandemonium reigns, He's more aware of grace than failures in the church in Corinth. And he is confident in God's finishing work in their lives. Paul is aware of God's past work in their life. He was there with them. He spent time with them. He saw the grace of God. He is confident and aware of God's present work in their life. And he is confident God is going to finish his work in their lives. Paul is encouraging them that God is at work. God is present. God's grace is abundant and apparent. And at the same time, their work isn't done yet. They still have more to do. He's, he's correcting their thinking. He's going to give them many things to do in this letter, but he wants to remind them and give them assurance that since God started this work, he will complete it. They are not perfect yet, but one day they will be. Verse 7, 
at the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he returns, when he comes back, they will be made perfect. And until that day, the God who called them, who set them apart, who, who is at work, he will sustain them. Look at verse 8. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? That is Paul's confidence. If it was up to the Corinthians, I'm not sure he would be very confident. He's not saying, Corinthians, you're going to make it to the end. You're great. You're wonderful. Not what he's saying. He's saying, God is faithful. I think he's reminding himself of this. Okay, God is faithful. He's going to sustain them to the end. It's the work of God in their lives. And the word here for sustain in verse 8, you could translate it to confirm or to guarantee. It's God's guarantee to the end. Jake cannot guarantee you're going to be safe after the founder. He has no guarantee. But God He gives us a guarantee here, and his guarantee is good to the end. It is a promise. It's like when God puts a guarantee on something he begins. He puts a stamp on this box. I will finish this. I guarantee it until the end. I remember several years ago, we got a transformer for one of our sons. Side note, don't ever do that. We got him a transformer. And the box, I remember looking at the box and seeing on the box, it had a one-year guarantee. And I thought that was kind of an odd guarantee, like one year. Who does one year, you know, on a toy? And I thought, okay, a one-year guarantee. And we gave it to one of our kids for his birthday. And we opened it up. And as soon as we opened it, we started kind of transforming it and the arm popped off. And I'm like, okay, I got to put the arm back on. And we start doing it some more and the leg popped off. And oh man, I was like, this is the worst toy I've ever bought. And I gave it to my son and he runs off and he's playing with his buddies. And every 30 seconds he's coming back and there's body parts flying everywhere on this toy. And I remember thinking a one-year guarantee, this thing doesn't last one day in my house, much less a year. It's not a good guarantee. When God gives a guarantee, It is good. It's not just one year. It's not one day. It is an eternal guarantee. When he calls you, when he sanctifies you, when you are in Jesus Christ, there is a stamp on that box that is good for all eternity. That is Paul's confidence here. Verse 9, God is faithful. He called you. He will sustain you. He will guarantee you to the end. Do they have problems? Yes, serious problems. Is God done with them? No. He has put his stamp of guarantee on their box. And I love verse 8. It's almost baffling that in verse 8, when he says, He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just Think about that word guiltless for a second. It's remarkable that Paul has such confidence about a community whose behavior is anything but blameless. Surely they are not without guilt. Even later on in this letter, he's going to exhort them. 
with strong warnings about what they're doing, saying this is not good. Stop this. And yet he begins with, you will be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, if, you, if you're viewing them through a human perspective, there's no denying they have a lot to work on. Oh, my, do they have a lot to work on. But the reality is, on that day, they will stand before God guiltless. Literally free from any charge or accusation. They will stand before the holy God of the universe with no guilt. How can this be? Well, if you're viewing them through the lens of Jesus Christ, then you know, you know Christ paid for it all. All the immorality, all the divisions, all the strife, all the boasting, all the outdoing one another in selfishness, all the unwillingness to submit to one another, he paid for it all. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the good news for every imperfect church, which is every single one of them. And that's the good news for every sinner here today. If God has called you, if God has chosen you, if you are in Christ, then what God has started, God will sustain, God will finish, and one day you will stand before God guiltless because Jesus Christ, who had no guilt, took your guilt upon himself and bore the punishment of God for your sins so that you could stand before God guiltless and free and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Paul views them through the gospel. Issues, yes. But on that day, they will stand before God guiltless because of the Savior, Jesus Christ. That's his confidence. That's his hope. That's his guarantee. That's how he knows God's going to sustain them. They're going to be okay. They're going to work through this. God's got them. And they will stand on that day guiltless before the Lord Jesus Christ. That is Paul's great confidence. He has confidence that God will preserve his church till the end. Nothing can thwart God's plan, God's purpose, and God's will for God's church. And so... This week, this morning, how do you view the church? How do you view others around you? How do you view your spouse and your kids? Is this how you view them? Are you wearing these divine glasses that have a divine perspective on those around you? In our community groups this week, let's look around and be aware. God's at work. God has done this. God has called them. God's going to sustain them. God's going to finish the work that he began. God has put a stamp of guarantee on this box. They will one day stand before God guiltless in Jesus Christ. God is faithful. Surely he will do it. And when we have that perspective, when we put on these glasses, when we allow 1 Corinthians 1 to instruct us like this, then 
we see God at work, and then we can say, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do want to respond to this text by saying, I give thanks to my God for the grace that was given to this church. We confess this morning, Lord, all we have is of grace, and we give you thanks. And I pray for our community groups this week. I pray for our relationships. I pray for families here in this church, Father, that this would be our divine perspective. That as we look around the room, we would see the grace of God at work. That there would be much worship this week in our community groups. That this congregation all week would just be saying, I give thanks to my God. Look how good he's been. Look how good he was. Look how he's preserved us. Look at his work in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for your work. And we thank you, God, that you're going to finish what you have started. And we long for that day. We long for that day where we will stand before you guiltless. Not because we haven't sinned against you, God, because we have, but because of the finished and final work of Jesus Christ. And to him, the solid rock on which we stand, we give all the glory this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 You've been listening to a message given by Mike Pluniak during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.